following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. This series we're in is called Foundations, and I've wrestled with what tone to take as I address some of these topics. Uh, my intention going forward throughout the entirety of the series is to keep the rhetorical flourishes to a minimum. I intend to be plain spoken and not ugly, but direct. My goal is for the Christian to be encouraged and strengthened in their understanding of what God has designed. And perhaps if you're a person who is not sure that you agree with what God has said, my goal is at the very least you'll know what it is you are rejecting. That said, if you have your Bibles, join me if you would in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Genesis 2 verse 18. Have you ever thought about the meaning and history behind the things that we do at a wedding? Why do we announce the engagement in the newspaper? Why do we invite family and friends to the celebration, but then call them witnesses? What are we afraid is going to happen at this wedding? Why do we usually get married in the church house rather than the courthouse? Why do Christians usually ask the pastor to perform the ceremony rather than a justice of the peace? And why does the pastor usually ask a question? Does anyone have reason why these two should not be united in holy matrimony? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Why does the pastor say that? There is a lot, <clears throat> a lot of confusion about marriage. A lot of mystery but the clues are hidden in plain sight. Part of the reason we are confused about marriage is because in our day and age, marriage is essentially considered to be only about the two people standing at the altar. So long as they are happy, we are content to celebrate what they're doing. But that is part of the confusion. Certainly we want the people involved to be happy with each other, but that is not the only thing to consider in a marriage. We are confused about what it means and what gives it binding authority. So what is marriage? God created marriage to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman. We see that in Genesis 2, verse 18 to 25. Please stand if you're able to in honor of the reading of God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. 
And while he slept, he took one of the ribs and closed up its flesh with place with its flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in worship. We thank you for what you've done for us at the cross. We thank you for the Bible, which speaks plainly of your intention for us and the blessing that you gave us not only when you created us, but also when you created marriage. Pray for our time together that it would indeed be fruitful. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I studied and thought about what people say and do when it comes to weddings and marriages and how we perceive them, one conversation I witnessed involved a, a man who he had actually chosen not to marry the girl he was with, and he celebrated the fact that we have been together without marriage, without that piece of paper, for longer than some of my friends who did get married. We don't need a piece of paper to validate what we have. And the truth is, from his perspective, I understand what he is saying, but in truth, what he has done is rejected God's plan for marriage. It's not just about a piece of paper. The piece of paper is the government's granting of permission, the government's recognition of the union. But it is not all there is to the story. When we think of marriage, there's more to it than just the two people involved. Why do we have announcements in the newspaper that so-and-so is going to marry so-and-so? Well, it comes from a tradition because years ago, it used to be that the churches would announce for three weeks prior to the wedding that these two people were going to get married. And if there were people from two different congregations, well, both congregations would put these announcements up in the church. What was the reason for it? Well, if there was a reason that they should not be married, for instance, if it was determined that the man actually had already been married and was currently married, well, that was a problem and it needed to be made known. So announcing the marriage gave opportunity to raise the objections. If the man had fathered children and uh, was not taking care of them, that needed to be brought to the surface. If there were legal or moral entanglements that were a hindrance to the marriage, we were to make it known. And the reason then that the pastor does this tradition, it's a vestige left over from that approach. So when the pastor says, if anyone has reason why these two should not be wed in holy matrimony, let them speak now or forever hold their peace, that was the last opportunity to voice such opposition to the marriage. See, I want you to catch something. We have made marriage a great celebration, and, and that's wonderful and beautiful, but it is also solemn. There is a recognition that before God, there are two people that are joining as one. It is a legal entity a moral entity, a uniting of two families. At the holidays, you see this well. For tr we traveled to 
to Cleveland and I saw my mom and dad and my brothers and their spouses and the kids and, and then the girl, the, the, my niece is dating a, a guy and we're kind of, we think he's a good one. Keep, hold on to this one. Uh, he's not a loser like some of the other ones out there. We like him. And then at Cleveland, well, Kenny's saying he is cool. Yeah, when, we go to, when we go back to Missouri, then it'll be Chrissy's side, and you'll see all the people and families that are married. See, it's not just about the two people involved. And when we think about this, I want us to understand that marriage is not just about you and me. It is that when we're at the wedding, but it's more than that. We have announcements because there is a legal world. We have witnesses because what these two people are saying, we are witnesses that they have entered willingly into this covenant with each other. And then we celebrate. When we think about it, one of the things that I, a few years ago, I had heard a Baptist preacher say something, and sometimes Baptist preachers are known for hyperbole, overstatement for effect, grand words. So I heard a Baptist preacher giving a talk on counseling, and he said the reason that they started to uh, have you get licensed and, and, and go to the courthouse to get these documents is so they could tax you. And I said, oh, there they go again. Overstatement for effect. But then I studied it out, and I said, you know, that's kind of true. But we still fill out the forms, and we still pay the tax because it's not unbiblical to do that. But it made me step back. This was all happening at a time when I began to see uh, our world, our culture, as abandoning this basic biblical foundation of marriage. And it made me realize something. I, I don't stand at a pulpit and officiate weddings because the state of Illinois has given me a paper, although it has. The state of Missouri and Ohio also have given me a certificate. I only officiate weddings because I, I serve a, a, as a minister of the gospel in a gospel-preaching church. And so when I realized that, I said, you know, from now on, I'm no longer going to say, by the power vested in me by the state of Illinois, I'm going to say, by the authority vested in me by the Lord Jesus Christ and His church, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Because while we respect the government, we as Christians enter into a specific thing called Christian marriage. It is no longer, as Christians, we don't have the luxury of viewing it as all the same. 20 years ago we did, not sure we can anymore. So God laid the foundation of marriage in Genesis 1 and 2 in the context of creation and blessing. He creates, speaks everything into existence, and then blesses his creation. This, the way God created marriage, the way God created us male and female, was before sin had entered the world, and behold, it was very good. Let's take a look. Verse 18, we see that God created men in such a way that we need a super, suitable helper. The creation was good, but the man's isolation was not. The man had no one that he could truly relate to verbally or sexually. He might be able to use mules as beasts of burden to ease manual labor, but the man had no one that he could truly partner with in the task of representing God and having dominion over the earth. Those were the twin tasks that God had given humanity in Genesis chapter 1. Since it was not good that the man should be alone, God determined to make a suitable helper for him. What God makes to complete the man is instructive for us. For in providing the solution to man's isolation, 
We will learn foundational principles for human society and human flourishing. On our own, men, we neither truly know anyone nor does anyone truly know us. But being created in the image of God includes the fact that we are relational beings designed to know and be known by others. The themes of creation and blessing continue with God's provision of a suitable helper for the man. Look at verse 19 and 20. God created us male and female so that together we can represent God and have dominion over the earth on his behalf. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. I am told that the DNA of cats and monkeys are a 98% match for human DNA. There is clearly then much overlap in the physical constitution of man and beast, but they are distinct. And yet the beasts of the earth are unsuitable matches for humans. They are splendid pieces of living art created by God, but they are not designed the same as man. They have a glory of their own, but they are not the pinnacle of God's creation. By God's will and perfect plan, mankind is the pinnacle of creation. Therefore, none of the animals were suitable for the man. They were not like him. Human beings are not cats and dogs. Did you ever think that you would live to see the day where that would be a controversial statement? I never thought I would have to explain this, but humans cannot be animals even if they self-identify as one or try to act like one. God, given, God had given the man dominion over the animals. Here and in chapter 2, verse 7, we see that God had formed man, both man and beast out of the dirt of the ground. Thus, the name Adam quite literally could also be translated dirt or ground because he came out of the ground. God presented the animals to Adam so that he could name them. This was a part of his task of having dominion. Among the animals, no suitable helper was found for the man, whether they were furry or feathery, scaly or slimy. God blessed mankind and charged us with the task of ruling the earth on God's behalf and representing him on the earth. This is why he created us. We saw this last week when we looked at Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. 
You shall have them for food. There's blessing there. And to every beast of the earth and, and to every bird of the heaven and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has a breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. On his own, the man could not effectively have dominion over the earth as God had commanded. The task was too great for one man. But not only could he not do what he was commanded to do, he stood to miss out on God's blessing because by himself he could not be fruitful and multiply. Thus God said that it was not good for the man to be alone. God, therefore, would make a helper that was suitable for the man. The nature of the helper will bless the first man and also reveal God's intention for the human race, for all of human history. God did not make a mistake. God did not leave something out on purpose or on accident in hopes that we would figure it out on our own as culture developed. He took all the guesswork out so that we can know without doubt his intention for human flourishing and marriage that he blesses. Let's examine what God did. God created the woman to help the man. Verse 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Whereas the beasts of the field and Adam himself were made of dust, God formed the woman out of the man's rib. The name Eve means alive or living because she came from something that was living and from her shall all living human beings come. He created the woman and presented the woman to the man. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? God said, I do. Notice what God did not do. He did not make the woman out of his head to rule over him, nor did God make the woman out of his feet to be trampled on by him. He made the woman out of his rib to be at his side, under his arm of protection and next to his heart. He is to take the lead in serving God, and she is to help him carry out his responsibilities before God. One of the reasons we've gotten also confused both in the church and outside of the church is that the conversation, without us even noticing it, went from what we are responsible for to becoming a conversation about our rights. What Adam needed help with was his responsibilities before God. The conversation and the meaning of marriage has gotten a little bit confused because we are demanding our rights. The man does have authority, but he does not have dominion over her. She is not a beast of the field. She is his suitable helper for which he celebrated. God made a woman for the man. God did not make a man for the man, nor did he make many women for the man. This rules out the practices of polygamy and polyandry. Polygamy is multiple husbands. Polyandry is having multiple, sorry, polygamy is having multiple wives and polyandry is having multiple husbands. Furthermore, same-sex marriage is contrary to the will of God. God made one woman and presented her to the one man. 
One of the wonderful wedding traditions that we enjoy is when the father gives away his bride, his daughter, in marriage. When the bride is escorted down the aisle, the minister asks, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And if he is available, the father of the bride will say, her mother and I do, or we do, or simply, I do. You may not know this, but some today denounce this tradition, calling it a horrible example of patriarchy and the evils of male dominance. So what are we to think of this? Indeed, it is an example of patriarchy, and a beautiful one at that, where a father entrusts the daughter whom he has provided for and protected her entire life to another man who shall also provide for and protect her for the rest of her life. In this glorious display of patriarchy, we see a reminder of the Garden of Eden where before sin had tainted our world, when God the Father gave his daughter's hand in marriage to the man. God created marriage to be between one man and one woman. This brings us to a foundational principle. Hear me loud and clear. God created marriage. God created marriage. Verse 23 to 25. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones. Hallelujah. And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now for years, I just got to say this about verse 25. For years, I sort of mistakenly thought verse 25 was describing the Garden of Eden as something like a, well, a, a nudist colony. But actually, the truth is, contextually, what he is saying is this. Sin has not yet entered the world, and man is not ashamed to stand before God. That's what he's describing. They were both naked and were not ashamed. When, they were, when, they, when there was realization that they had sinned, they realized they were naked, and they hid from God. But in this Garden of Eden setting where the first marriage takes place, there is no sin. There is no shame. There is no terror before God. God set the foundation that marriage is the pinnacle of social relationships. It is to come before our relationship with our parents, our children, our neighbors, and our coworkers. This does not mean those relationships are no longer important. It means that they are not the pinnacle. God set the foundation that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. God sent the foundation for lifelong marriage. God made the first humans male and female to enable them to reproduce. The reproductive organs are for both reproduction and recreation. Both are parts of the blessing that you find in chapter 1, to be fruitful and multiply. For the Christian, sex, whether for reproduction or recreation, is to be enjoyed by those who are in submission to God and his design for the human race. That means inside the bonds of holy matrimony. God created mankind, and he created marriage. He has determined that there shall be only two genders, not 112. I found out the next day that there's somebody who said, there, no, there's 115. There's just two. And God has made marriage to be worthy of respect when it is between one man and one woman. 
Our culture is abandoning this foundation. It tolerates and celebrates marriages that are built, that are not built on the foundation that God has laid. And in the church, there are some who claim to call Jesus Lord while at the same time rejecting his lordship as the creator of marriage. The Lord created marriages. He is the founder. He defines the purposes of marriage and provides the guidelines for what is acceptable to him and what he rejects. I don't say this to be ugly, just to be plain spoken. He is the one that laid the foundation of the marriage, not the church, not me, not the president, not the courthouse. God, not government, created marriage. Mankind did not create marriage. Neither did movie stars or musicians. God created marriage. This is a foundational principle. So when we hear people in the culture saying things contrary to what God has said, remember, they did not create it. They have no authority over it unless they are doing so in submission to the Lord. Period. Again, not trying to be ugly, but plain spoken. So what do we do when the courts and the culture respect marriages that God does not respect? What do we do when the culture and even some in the church embrace what God has rejected as wickedness? Christian, we must decide whose authority is ultimate. God or government? The Messiah or movie stars? Christ or the culture? We must decide whose voice has the authority. We must decide that while we respect people, we do not respect or agree with some of the things that they do. This is a lost art in our culture. We may love people, but not always love what they do. This has always been true. For some reason, that's considered by some to be hate speech. We love people. Don't always love what they do. That's the way God feels about us. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. Because God loved us, but hated what we do. We must hold fast to God's standard by holding to God-honoring principles for marriage. One man, one woman, for life, forsaking all Others. Marriage is to be monogamous, heterosexual, and durable. This is the position of Calvary Baptist Church. And we hold to it without compromise or apology. What difference should this vision of marriage have for our lives? Well, number one, the marriage bed alone is undefiled. This means that we pursue purity as Christians, by abstaining from sex until we are biblically and lawfully married. Biblic Do you know that biblically and lawfully are not always the same thing? That has become clear to me. Biblical marriage has a certain guideline set to it. So number one, marriage, is marriage bed is undefiled. All Everything else is not. Furthermore, marriage is to be a joy for both husband and wife. And when it is not, we work together with our spouse and, if necessary, a counselor 
too sure that it is. Third, marriage is intended to persevere in joyful faithfulness to God, each other, the witnesses, and even the government under which, by God's providence, we have entered into those vows. What if we have failed God in some way or another on the matter of God's design for marriage? Same as everything else as a Christian. We repent. The word repentance is from the Greek metanoeo. It means to change your mind and reject what you thought was right and embrace what God has declared to be right. And then to begin to act accordingly. If a person has begun to engage in sex outside of marriage, the, the, the principle is the same. Repent and begin to abstain until you are biblically and lawfully married. If you want the privileges that God intends to be enjoyed in marriage, then get married. Ask God for forgiveness and then determine that with God's help, you will live life His way from this point forward. That you will embrace what He embraces and reject what he rejects. How do we do that in a culture like today? Can I just tell you, you don't have to be loud and rude, but sometimes it's a matter of being plain spoken or simply choosing not to celebrate what you know God is not celebrating. And as time goes on, it will become increasingly noticeable that you are not without having said a word. What do we do if we have, perhaps for the first time today, understood that God has a principle, He has a foundational principle. Marriage is between one man and one woman. And only in the marriage bed is sex undefiled. What do we do when we realize we have failed in this regard? Repent. But even more than that, perhaps this morning, because of this discussion of biblical morality, you have understood an area in which you have failed God. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not everyone fails God in the exact same way, but the truth is the same. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the response is the same. Recognize where you are. You have gotten away from God in the pursuit of sin. But now, because you have sinned, you are far from Him. But Jesus Christ came into the world not to condemn you, but to save you. And what God wants from us is to repent, to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus in faith. Asking for the forgiveness of sins and then determining that you will follow Him and that with His strength, you will pursue holiness in every area of your life, whether in your marriage or in this time where you're not yet married. But in all areas of life, marriage, money, relationship to government, relationship to neighbors, relationship to your boss, whatever the case may be, what we are talking about is redemption. As Chad and the praise team comes forward, I've wrestled long and hard. How do, how do I end a sermon in which I am essentially preaching mostly to the choir? Mostly to the choir. I don't know that I assume that anymore. But the solution is still the same. 
when you know your thoughts and attitudes and even your actions are outside of God's will, you repent. That's what Christians do because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So as we sing our last song of worship, the response is the same. Confess to God where you have failed him, determining to return to his ways. Perhaps this morning you'd like to call on the Lord for salvation. Make your way to the front. And we help you call on him. He will hear you and he will save you. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.